Well, something that I really enjoy about studying the attributes of God is that it causes you to take a deeper look at who he is. A deeper look into something that maybe you've known about generally for a really long time. Maybe a lot of you have been Christians for a long time, for for the majority of your life, and and you've heard about things like God's sovereignty and God's holiness and God's love and, and other attributes, but when's the last time you actually took a deep dive and you thought about what does this mean? What does it actually mean that God is, is holy? God's holiness is not the only topic in the church that people talk about all the time and may not have a complete or full understanding of what it is. There's so many different church words or, or theological terms that are thrown around all the time in the church, and maybe we don't know what they mean exactly. If you're not careful when it comes to things like God's holiness or just why do we gather for church in the first place? Why do we pray? Why do we sing songs? If you're not careful, you can just kind of fall into a lull with all of these things and then it just becomes going through the motions and and you just know bits and pieces of why we do things and who God is but you don't have a full picture of exactly who he is. So that's another reason why I just I love studying his attributes to know him better. holiness of God is crucial to understanding who he is. It is such a major part of who he is, and we'll see that his holiness permeates through all of his other attributes. So we have to understand what does it mean that God is holy if we're going to understand anything else about him at all. And if you miss out on understanding the holiness of God, there are so many things about the Christian faith itself that you won't get You're not going to understand properly, or maybe there's something about the Christian faith that you won't take seriously if you don't understand the holiness of God properly. I mean, there's a reason why so many evangelists will start the conversation about the gospel with God's holiness. Because from there, so many other things about God and about the gospel start to make sense. Open your Bibles, please, to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 is where we're going to be at this evening. It's a very familiar passage. I'm sure that a lot of you know this passage. You've read it. You've studied it. You've heard sermons on it before. God's holiness is put on display here in this passage. Everything that we're going to read about what happens in this vision of Isaiah, it's putting God's holiness on display. We get a glimpse into the throne room of God. We get a description of how God chose to reveal himself to Isaiah in these verses. We get a description of his appearance. We get a description of the scene that's unfolding around God as he's sitting on his throne. And it all points to how holy God is. And we get to see the way that Isaiah responds to the holiness of God. And we're going to talk about how do we need to respond to the holiness of God. So Isaiah chapter 6, read with me verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. 
and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. It's a familiar passage. It's a familiar story. It's a familiar word. You know this word, holy. But even though it's familiar, it may not be something that you fully understand. And tonight, what we're going to do, what what I want tonight to do is for point number one. I want you to understand what it means that God is holy. Of course, there are things about God and His holiness and other attributes that we're not going to grasp because we're just human. We have finite minds. But as much as we can, as much as God has revealed in His Word about His attributes, we need to understand. So I don't want you to just hear the Word and know a, a basic little definition of what it means. We're going to open God's Word and see what does it mean that He is holy. So understand what it means that God is holy. Well, God, he reveals himself to Isaiah in this vision. And through this vision, we learn about God's holiness. Everything that Isaiah sees in this vision is expressing the holiness of God. Everything about God is perfectly holy. And God's holiness, it defines his other attributes as well, right? His love is holy love. His justice is holy justice. His wrath is holy wrath. Everything about God is holy. And God is holy in two primary senses. The first being he is set apart. He is distinguished. He's sacred. He's distinct. He he is entirely different than everything else that he's created. That's the first sense. And the other is that he is morally perfect. He is pure, completely perfect in every single way. Well, the first thing that Isaiah mentions is that God is sitting on his throne high and lifted up. It shows that God is quite literally high and lifted up, away, set apart from his creation. He is distinct. He is separate from everything else that he has created. His holiness, it's more than just thinking of someone that you consider to be holy, a person, and then multiplying that by a lot. Sometimes we can think about God's holiness. He's just a lot holier than everybody else is. It's, It's more than that. He is entirely different. He is his own complete degree of holiness away from us, away from all of creation. He's infinitely above his creation. His holiness is transcendent. That means it's beyond what is normal. Surpassing the ordinary. He is infinitely superior to everything else. Exodus 15.11 says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods?
gods. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? No one is. There is no one like our God. There is no one holy and awesome like him. No one matches him. No one or nothing even comes close to him. He is supreme. He is above it all. His holiness sets him so far apart from everything. His holiness, it's, it's awesome. Deuteronomy 7 says, For the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. In Deuteronomy 10, it says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. God of gods, Lord of lords. He's better. He's higher. He is so infinitely more wonderful and majestic than anything else. He is the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. So just like all of God's attributes, God's holiness, it should leave all of you, all of us, in awe of how amazing he is. His holiness should just leave us in wonder and awe and make us worship him. Immediately, through Isaiah's vision, we are struck with the reality that we are not like God. No one is like God. Nothing is like God. He is set apart. He is infinitely higher than all of his creation. And this is expressed because Isaiah saw him high and lifted up on his throne. And the next thing that Isaiah mentions is that the train of God's robe filled the temple. God is king. This robe, the train of his robe, it, it expressed his majesty. It, it expresses his, his kingship. It, it was, it was uh, in ancient times, the greatness of kings was revealed by how long the train of their robe was. So it was normal, it was customary for kings to have robes that had very long trains that would follow them everywhere they went. And the longer the train, the, the, the better the king was, the, the, the more majestic the king was. And so Isaiah, he looks in this vision and he sees God on his throne. And then he says, the train of his robe it filled the temple. It was completely full of the train of God's robe. Just, just imagine, just try and picture God is up on his throne and the train of his robe is twisting and turning and covering the floor of the temple. This, this whole room covered by a, a, a train of a robe. I don't know about you, but if I walked in and saw something like that, I'd be a little bit overwhelmed. And Isaiah was overwhelmed. That, that's the point. You should be overwhelmed by the majesty of God. Overwhelmed by the holiness of God. His, his train, it symbolizes that he is the greatest of all. There's no room in that temple for another train. No other king will fit. No other robe will fit because his robe takes all the space. Even his robe, the robe that he was wearing, it shows how holy, how distinct, how set apart he is. And then Isaiah, he brings up the seraphim and the, the word seraphim, it literally means burning ones. These seraphim, these angels are the, the burning ones. They're in the very presence of our holy God. And what, what are these seraphim doing? They're using all six of their wings. 
It says two of the wings are covering their faces. Covering their faces out of, out of humility. They, they, they know that they are lowly, that they are not like God. So they're covering their faces. And it's, it's, it's so interesting that they're doing this. They're covering their faces because most likely these angels, these seraphim, are sinless beings. They're, they're not sinful. They're in the presence of God. They're not sinful. But they still are having to cover their faces because of how holy and how wonderful and awesome and majestic God is. They're too lowly to look at Him. God's holiness causes even these creatures to hide their faces from Him. And the other two wings are covering their feet. Their faces are covered. Their feet are covered. And so many different things that commentaries say about this. It could be they're, they're covering their feet because they're determined to only move when God tells them to move. So they're saying, I, I'm, I'm submitting to you, God. We're not going to move anywhere until you tell us to move. Or it could be something like they're covering their feet because feet are known as like a less desirable part of the body. Like they don't want their feet to be exposed in the presence of God. Whatever, however you want to take it, the point is they are covering themselves in response to the holiness of God, these burning ones. And they're using the other two to fly. These angelic beings are struck by the holiness of God. And it causes them to recognize that God is superior. God is infinitely more superior and he is holy. And also in response to being in the presence of God, these angels are constantly calling out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Any of the attributes of God, these angels could be calling out. But they're only calling out one. It's not on a rotation. It's one attribute of God. They're saying, holy, 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 over and over again. And in the three times, holy, 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 it's, it's showing, it's picturing something like this, like God is holier, sorry, God is holy, he is holier, he is holiest. It's, it's to the third degree, it's magnified, they're, they're even proving with how they're worshiping him, he is alone holy. There is no one like him. There will never be anyone like him. He is holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And as these angels are saying, holy, 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 their voices are so powerful that it's causing the foundations in the temple to shake. And it's being filled with smoke. And the smoke itself is also a picture of God's presence and his holiness. And even these creatures that that seem to be so powerful are completely just submitted in covering themselves because of how holy God is and they're in the presence of this holy God. So God's holiness, he is set apart. That's what we mean when we say he's holy. It's something like a Sunday school answer. What does holy mean? Set apart. Yay, we know. That's what it means, that he is so, so just distinguished and distinct from everything, everything else. 
The other aspect of God's holiness is his moral perfection. He's perfect. He is sinless. And this is the concept that most of the time when thinking of God's holiness, this is what people say. Oh, God's holy. He's perfect. Yes. Yes, he is. He is sinless, completely pure, and perfect in every way. In Habakkuk 1.13, it says that God, he cannot look at wrong. He cannot look at evil. He is so perfect, he can't even look at it. All sins, big, small, however you want to categorize it, all sin is wicked in his sight. He can't look at it. And of course, he cannot sin. It's not just that he doesn't, it's that he cannot. Because he is holy. He can't even be tempted to sin, is what James 1.13 tells us. He can never make any kind of mistake. All of his decisions, all of his judgments, all of his decrees, everything that he does or says completely perfect. And because he is perfect, because of his moral perfection and purity, he cannot be neutral towards sin. His perfection is the standard that he judges sin by. He hates sin. He hates it. His holiness demands for him to hate it. Psalm 5 says, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before you, your eyes. You hate all evildoers. That's how much he hates it. Not just he hates the evil, but his word actually says, He hates all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors. He hates the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. That's how much he hates sin. And his holiness, it demands that. And it also demands that sin be punished. He can't be neutral towards it, and he can't let sin go unpunished. He has to punish. He must judge sin. A morally perfect God cannot allow sin to go unpunished. And he will punish sin. I just, I just I want, I want all of you to understand this is what it means that God is holy. Let's, let's stop talking about God and his holiness in such a flippant, lackadaisical way. Let's understand what we mean whenever we are saying, God, I worship a holy God. We sing so many songs to God all the time expressing that he is holy. Let's understand what we're saying when we're singing this to him and we're worshiping for his holiness. Let's understand what we're saying that this is what it is. So we see that Isaiah is having this vision and God is revealing himself to him. He's, he's standing before God's throne. He's just taking it all in. Just completely overwhelmed by everything that's happening. He's coming to an understanding of God's holiness that he didn't have before. He understands now. He, he sees God is infinitely set apart from his creation. He recognized that God is completely perfect, completely sinless in, in every way. 
And in that moment, he's also struck with his own sinfulness. In the presence of this holy God, this perfect God, he then realizes, I should not be here. He is completely struck with his own sinfulness. He, he's, it's kind of an unexpected thing. He, he's filled with dread in this moment. Complete fear and, and dread. His woe is me. He's observing and seeing all this, and it's not that, it's not that he, he, he doesn't join in with the angels and sing holy, holy, holy. He doesn't do anything like that. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. His response to the holiness of God is exactly the response that you and I should have. In seeing the holiness of God, our response should be, woe is me. Number two, in light of God's holiness, you need to recognize your own sinfulness. That's, that's the proper response to understanding God's holiness. Whenever you understand what it is, the, the next step is to then say, I am not that way. I am not holy. I am sinful. I am, I am undone. Woe is me. So God is holy. And, and in his holiness, it also means that he is unapproachable by unredeemed and sinful humanity. He, he, he's unapproachable. You cannot approach him if you are unredeemed and sinful. In his holiness, it's convicting. Whenever, whenever you are struck with how sinful you are. That should be convicting. You should be convicted of your sin following that. Because God exposes all sin. No matter how hard you're trying to hide your sin, when you understand the holiness of God, you have no choice but to then say, I am so sinful. God's holiness caused Isaiah to be painfully convicted of his sin. So at this point, Isaiah has completely stopped comparing himself to anyone or anything else other than God and his own holiness. There, there's no more of looking around the room at the other people he's with and saying, I'm, I'm good, I'm fine, I'm, I'm, I'm good with my holiness, I feel good about this. Because he's face to face with God, the Holy One of Israel, and in comparison to him, woe is me. If all you ever do is compare yourself to people, you will always be able to find somebody worse than you. You know what I mean? You're always going to be able to make yourself feel better whenever you're comparing yourself to people. There's always going to be someone who did something that, that, that you know was wrong. At least I didn't do this. I'm looking around at all these people that I'm around, and I'm pretty holy. I'm pretty. I'm pretty. I'm more like Jesus than these people. And when you do that, first of all, that's arrogant. That's wrong. That's self-righteous. It's 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 sin. But you're you've got it all wrong. You're not supposed to be comparing yourself to anyone else other than the standard that God sets in the one that Christ lived up to. You're comparing yourself to Him. And when you do that, there's no. Oh, I think I'm doing good. 
I'm good. When you start doing the right thing and comparing yourself to God who is perfect, then you will be overwhelmed with your own sinfulness. This is what happened to Isaiah. And the same thing happened to Peter in Luke chapter 5. He, he becomes aware that Jesus is the Messiah and he hits the ground. And he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He says, I shouldn't even be near, get a, I, I'm so sinful that you shouldn't be near me, Jesus. Depart from me, get away from me, because I am so sinful. It happened to John in the book of Revelation, in chapter 1. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Faced with the glory of Christ is one reason why he fell that way, but also because it's, it's the same response. Depart from me. Isaiah, Peter, John, they all responded appropriately. They were reminded of their own sinfulness, their own unworthiness, and how they were deserving of punishment. Now, first of all, let me say this. If you are here this evening and, and you're not a Christian, this is all true for you. I don't want you to be hearing what I'm saying and tuning this out and be like, I don't, I don't, I don't, this isn't for me. This is for you. This is, this is for you. Listen. You need to understand that you are wicked. That you are evil. You are sinful. And a holy and just God, he will punish. He has to. His holiness, his character demands that he punish sin. So when, when you see how sinful you are in light of how holy God is, the only thing left for you to do is, is repent. Is repent of your sin and put your trust in Jesus. He's the only way to be saved. He is the only way so if, if, if you, maybe I'm not talking to anybody, but if you're here and, and you're just putting this off and like, I don't need this, I'll figure it out myself, I don't, I don't want this, this is the truth. This is the truth. You need to repent of your sin. Now, of course, this is also true for those who have already trusted in the finished work of Christ. Isaiah Isaiah was already technically a believer when he had this vision. He, God had already, and there's five chapters of this book where God was, was communicating to him, where he was prophesying, and he was already a believer. So Isaiah was following God and obeying him already. Yet he still had this response whenever he came face to face with God in his holiness. So this vision is actually a really good gift that God gave to Isaiah, because it caused him to take an even deeper look into himself and to see all the things that were not pleasing to God. Even if you are a Christian, even if you do trust in Jesus, you should be constantly 
evaluating your life and searching for things that are not pleasing to God. When you think about God's holiness, you should then be confronted with the sin that you are committing, the sin that you are indulging in, the things that, you, that you're keeping to yourself and you're trying, to, you're trying to hide from others. When you think of God's holiness, those things should come to mind, and then as a result, you should be disgusted by the sin in your life. So, Again, I'm talking right now to, to believers, to those who profess the name of Jesus. What is your attitude towards sin? You think about it. I want you to answer it honestly. What is your attitude towards sin? Are you disgusted by your sin? When you sin, how quickly do you repent? When you sin, are you grieved? Are you repulsed by even the thought of sinning before a holy God? It's, it is way too common, far too common among people who claim to be followers of Jesus to not take their sin seriously. It is, it is far too common. So I want you to ask yourself, are you taking sin seriously? Do you see sin? Do you treat sin for what it is? And it is rebellion against our holy God. Or are you making excuses for your sin? Are you justifying your sin? Are you trying to explain it away? Think about how, think about how sick that it must make God when people who profess the name of Jesus are the same people who commit sin after sin after sin and they think nothing of it. So yeah, I'm, I'm talking about the ones who would say I'm a Christian but you're off sleeping around with your boyfriend and girlfriend on the weekend. I'm talking about the ones who you profess the name of Jesus but you're gone on the weekends and you're doing things that you just you know are wrong, but you don't care. You just keep on professing the name of Christ. The ones who profess the name of Christ, you come to church on the weekend, you put this, this smile on, this mask on, and you're this person here on Sundays, but then every other day of the week, you're completely different. But, but I'm also talking to the ones who are not committing any blatant sin like I just described. Nobody has an out here. I'm talking about the ones who have developed this attitude that they're good. That, that you're good. I mean, sure, when you compare yourself to others, you're, you're good. Good job. What about the self-righteousness that so easily creeps in? The self-righteous attitude that you can have when you think, I'm not doing any major thing. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. I must be doing pretty good. I'm great. I'm, I'm good. It's all good. Or how you love some people really well, but then there's other people that, that you don't treat well, that you don't treat right. Some people that you're like, oh, I love these people. I'm treating them the way that Christ wants me to treat them. 
But there's other people over here that I just can't stand to be around, that I'm not going to change that. I'm not even going to work on it. I'm not going to pray about it because I'm good. What about the laziness that has started to show up in your life? What about the slothfulness that can easily set in and creep in? Maybe you've become complacent in your relationship with Christ. Maybe you haven't opened your Bible near as much as you know you should because you're good. It's fine. What about the fact that maybe you are completely ignoring the command of Jesus to go and make disciples? Everyone, everyone needs to take a moment and to look at at your life, at your lives compared to the standard that God sets, that his holiness sets. You need to recognize the areas that you're falling short. You need to repent. You need to be disgusted by the sin that you see in light of meditating and thinking on the holiness of God, and you need to repent of your sin. Now, once Isaiah, once he had become undone, once he did, woe is me, he's fallen down, he's, he's, bare, he's, he's the weight of his sin, he understands it. He says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Once he does that, something crazy happens. One of the seraphim, flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The burning hot coal comes from an altar. And this altar, it's in reference to the altar of burnt offering in the temple courts. Leviticus 16. On the Day of Atonement, what would happen is the high priest would take coals for the incense from the altar of the burnt offerings, and, and these, these coals would be brought into the holy place in order to burn the incense, in order to do these things. So the coal, listen, the coal was to come from the place of sacrifice, from the place where a substitute was offered For the people's sins. That's where this coal is coming from. From the place where the substitute goes. And this coal is brought to Isaiah. It touches his lips. And the angel says, your sin has been atoned for. To atone means to make right. Your sin has been atoned for. So this hot coal, it represents God's purifying work. And this is all a picture of of the forgiveness that can be found in God through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. So I want you to, point number three, I want you to be grateful for the atoning work of Christ. Isaiah sees the holiness of God. He's filled with dread at the realization of the lack of his own holiness and then God actually does something to make him become holy. The same God, the same God who causes you to see your filthiness is the same God who provides what you need to be cleansed. 
God is holy. He demands for us to be holy, but we cannot be perfect. So God gave us the answer to the problem. He provided the solution. He provided a way that you and I can be seen as perfect through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus. Jesus lived up to the standard. Jesus was perfect. He took the punishment that sin deserves, that your sin and my sin, that we deserved. And now because he's done this, because he was resurrected on the third day, because he conquered sin and death, we get to become righteous. We get to become the righteousness of God. And we need to be grateful for this truth. Christians, we've got to be grateful for the atoning work of Christ. People always laugh at this when I say this, but I'll tell you guys. I don't know why people laugh, I don't get it, but I didn't ride on an airplane until I was 21. Thank you. I don't get I don't get what people, I don't know, it's, I guess it's funny. I was 21, rode my first airplane. It was actually, this is kind of crazy, it was actually to come here five years ago to be an intern. So that's cool, I think that's cool, whatever. And I remember the feeling that I had before the plane took off. 21 year old, I think I had just finished like my junior year in college. And I remember feeling like a five-year-old kid. Seriously, I, I had, like, it was an empty plane. There was like four people on the plane, too. I was like, this is great. I get to look out the window. I, I, and then I realized, like, dude, you got to be cool. Like, you, gotta, you just got to <laughs> chill out. Like, you're 21 years old. This is fine. But I remember sitting down and buckling up, you know, and the plane getting ready to take off. And then I'm like, oh, no, I've made a mistake. This is, this is not going to be good. I'm scared. All the emotions you feel on a plane, it takes off. And then I just remember looking out the window and just being amazed, like, in, in awe of what I was seeing. Like, I was in a giant metal tube flying through the air, getting to see God's creation from, I don't know how high I was up in the air. I just, I just the whole plane ride, I don't know where I went. First, Atlanta, and then here, I guess. That doesn't matter. <laughs> the whole plane ride, I was just like, in awe. I just remember thinking and just being like, God, like, you're so, you're so amazing. You created this. Like, we're able to fly. <laughs> the point is, I was just, I was in awe. Like, just so grateful to even be there on the plane in the first place. But you know what? What started to happen by the time I rode my third or fourth plane? It became less and less awesome for me. And then by my fifth, sixth, seventh—I don't know how many it's been now. I mean, I'm on my phone. I'm reading. I don't have that same sense of awe. Nothing changed. I'm still on a plane. God's creation is still there. I'm st I can still be in awe, but I just, don't, I just don't have it because I got used to it. I got used to this feeling, this, this crazy thing of, of flying. Unfortunately, for Christians, the atoning work of Jesus... It can become just another truth of scripture that we yawn at. That we don't treat it with the gratefulness that we should. 
that we just start going through the motions. It can become such a normal part of our lives that we just lose the sense of gratefulness that we had for it at one point in time. What would it be like? What would your days be like if you stopped taking this truth for granted? For those of you that have been a Christian for a long time, maybe you, you, you'll understand what I'm about to say, but every now and then I meet someone who like just became a Christian. I mean, within the last few weeks, months, in the last year, I don't know. But have you ever noticed that those Christians always, maybe not always, but a lot of the time, they seem to be more excited about what Christ did for them. They seem to be more fired up about that they have forgiveness for their sin because they have sinned and offended a holy God, but Jesus provided the way for them to be saved. Have you noticed that before? Where they just seem to be like way more fired up about the gospel than someone that's been a Christian for a long time does. It seems like they're the ones that are taking evangelism really seriously. Like, like, they're the ones that are out there doing all the work that we know that we're supposed to be doing because we've been Christians for longer. If we could just stay grateful, just, just remind yourselves every day what Christ has done, this atoning work. I think that we might be more like those people that have just become Christians. Excited about it. Excited to share it with people. Like, did you know that there's a way that, that you, bad news, you're offending a holy God and you deserve to die and go to hell, but there's a good news here. We need to be excited about this. Now look, I'm sure that Isaiah felt grateful and relieved to hear those words. I want you to think, put yourself in his shoes. He falls back, woe is me, he's probably thinking he's going to die. And then, you've been atoned for. I'm sure he was grateful and thankful to hear those words after being so fearful. So I'm just saying, the Christians, that we need to be grateful for what Christ has done. I want you to look at what happens in verse 8. It says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. You see, I hope you see what's happening here. Isaiah encountered the holiness of God, was confronted with his own sinfulness, with his need for redemption. God then provided that redemption, and now Isaiah is jumping at an opportunity to obey. It seems like what is happening is his gratefulness to God for redeeming him, for atoning for him, is then leading him to obedience. Everyone who professes faith should be serious about obeying God. It's, it's called being concerned with your personal holiness. So point four, write it this way. Pursue personal holiness. God's holiness and your sinfulness and, and then the fact that he has saved you, it should motivate you to be pursuing holiness for you to be holy. So yes, as a Christian, you are now in Christ and when God sees you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. 
that was given to you, that was gifted to you because you trusted in him, not because of your own work. So yes, Christians, when God sees you, he sees Christ. But there is still responsibility placed on you and me today to obey the commands of Jesus. It's not just a free pass. Yay, you're made righteous. Do whatever you want now. It doesn't matter. That's, that's not the point. And I know that we know this. You, you could say that. I, I didn't just say anything like revolutionary or earth-shattering to you. We've got to be pursuing personal holiness. 1 John 1, 6 and 7, it says, If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So you need to be walking in the light. You need to be obeying. What Christ has done for you should be motivating you to live and pursue holiness, to become more and more like Jesus. It's, it's easy, it's so easy just to get caught up in going through the motions as a Christian, attending church, reading the Bible here and there, not really having a prayer life other than occasionally whenever you pray because you feel like guilty because you haven't prayed in a long time. It's easy to become complacent in your pursuit of personal holiness. It's, it's easy to fall into this. But God's call for holiness, it should wake us up. We should read a passage of scripture like this and we should just snap out of it. Wake up! Get out of the complacent attitude, lifestyle that you've been having. Turn away from the sin. Keep resisting the devil. Keep fleeing from temptation. Actively pursue holiness. Because you are grateful for what Christ has done for you. My hope and my prayer is that after hearing so much tonight about God's holiness, that, that you have understood, that you've recognized your sin, and you see the areas in your life that you need to repent and you need to be pursuing holiness, and if you've done that, if, you've, if, you've, if, if you're thinking, okay, yeah, I'm with you, I'm tracking, like, I, I'm right here, I get it. You are, you're at a crossroads right now. You can, you can decide. You, it's up to, you have to make a decision now. You can do one of two things. You, you can do nothing. You can ignore conviction. You can ignore what we just read from Isaiah 6. And you can stay in your sin. Or you can repent. And obey and pursue holiness. And God's word is clear on which decision is the right decision. So stop making excuses. Stop justifying your sin. Stop ignoring your sin. Take this command seriously to be pursuing holiness. And then don't stop. Don't stop. An interesting thing happens on this side of eternity. When you are pursuing holiness and you're becoming more and more like Jesus, you don't arrive. 
there's not a point on this side of eternity where you're going to go, great, I'm here. This is what it was all about. The more you become like Jesus, the more and more you're going to be able to recognize your sin. It's just going to become more and more magnified. You're going to recognize it faster. You're going to repent from it faster. So you need to make sure that you understand what we've been talking about. That you understand that we serve a holy and perfect God. And that you and I are not perfect. And that his holiness demands to punish sin. And that he will punish sin, but he's provided the way for you to be made righteous. And I pray that you've trusted, that you have taken the way, that you trust in Jesus for your salvation. But, but now, wake up. Be grateful for what he's done. Get out of the complacency and pursue holiness because you love him. Let's pray. God, you are a holy God. God, you are a holy God. You are perfect. You are set apart, distinct, different. You are greater than we are. You are greater than your creation. Help us to understand this. Please, God, help us to understand what your holiness demands from us. We ask that you would help us to be grateful for the atoning work of Jesus. That we wouldn't be going through the motions with our faith anymore. That we would repent from complacency. God, that you would light a fire in us tonight to pursue holiness, to become more and more like you, to be putting energy toward our sanctification. God, so help us to, to do that this week, starting tonight. God, we love you and we're, we're thankful for who you are, for what you've done for us, for how you've blessed us, for how you've provided the way of salvation to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.